This is a Federal News Network podcast. This year's Secretary of Defense Environmental Award winner in the Environmental Quality Individual Team category went to the Air Force Radioactive Recycling and Disposal Team. As part of the 88th Civil Engineer Group, AFRAD handles low-level radioactive recycling and low-level mixed waste management in the Air Force and provides radioactive material recycling for the entire Defense Department. To learn more about this mission, Federal News Network's Eric White spoke with Zach Olds, AFRAD Team Supervisor, and Chris Anthony, Radioactive Material Program Manager. You'll hear Anthony first. We're the belly button for the United States Air Force on all radioactive waste and recycling. So that covers, uh, you know, Space Force, uh, Air Reserve, Air National Guard, and active duty worldwide. Basically, our, our mission is to see what we can recycle first. Uh, does the radioactive material have some sort of use uh, that we don't have to dispose of? So we always look to see what we can recycle and uh, anything that that's not viable for reuse, then, then that's what we actually send for waste. And where does most of the radioactive material come from? You know, not, not that I'm not trying to divulge any secrets or anything, but how do you guys come about it? What step are you guys in the process? We are uh, actually listed in several um, Air Force manuals or, you know, the, I guess the Air Force equivalent to regulations. Um, you know, and even in Department of Defense instructions and things like that, uh, as as the disposition out, um, outlet. Um, so when things are being trimmed out of the system, um, and if they are flagged as being radioactive, uh, something like a compass, uh, then the supply system will recognize that and relay that information to whatever installation RSO is trying to turn this stuff in that they need to go through AFRAD for the disposition of that. Um, you know, and I might add, we are also uh, the recycler um, for Department of Defense. So uh, we don't handle any of their waste, but things that we know we can recycle, like compasses and exit signs and things like that, we will take from uh, specifically the Army, since uh, they, they are the lead agent uh, for low-level radioactive waste, and, and they use us uh, for the recycling uh, part of it. So it, uh, a lot of this relies on uh, every installation's radiation safety officer to be aware of what's on their base and uh, whenever it needs to be turned in, that they know where to go. And, and, that, and, and we're outlined in, in regulations and manuals and things like that. Yeah, and, to, and to that, too, I'd add that basically what Chris was alluding to is, you know, the, these guys are plugged in with the, uh, the, the radiation safety officers uh, across the Air Force. So uh, they are a resource uh, for those, uh, those RSOs. Uh, and, and so uh, they provide consultative services to those, those individuals. So because they're, they're uh, specifically listed, because of AFRAD, I say they, it's RE, but because AFRAD is is uh, plugged into that community, listed in the Air Force manuals and instructions and DOD instructions, um, they're inherently part of that disposition process. So they're they are the subject matter experts as a result, and, and so they're regularly consulted for that types of questions that, that come up 
with respect to radiation uh, uh, material, radioactive material disposition. So basically, they you know they know you guys can handle any kind of waste, so they come to you even when it's not you directly handling the material. Do they ask you for consulting and, and things like that as well? By Air Force regulation, um, all disposition has to go through our office. Whether uh, we handle it directly like uh, remediation waste, uh, where there may be a facility uh, that needs to be cleaned up or demolished or whatever, uh, we wouldn't necessarily handle that waste physically, uh, but we provide the consultation to those agencies uh, to you know, get rid of the waste. And, it's specifically and radioactive. It's specifically radioactive, yeah. right. So we have to know. We keep the records for the Air Force. So anything that's, that's recycled or waste, it goes through our office, and, and we do manage those records. So who's actually <laughs> handling this stuff? I mean, you guys are a pretty small team. Are you guys uh, putting on the, the gloves and uh, grabbing the thing, or are you you're just telling who it, should be yeah. handling it? <laughs> well, it's 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 not as glamorous as like Silkwood or something like that, you know, the movie <laughs> Silkwood. But uh, yeah, there there are four of us. We have the capability to go worldwide to assist any installation that would have things that are that we couldn't necessarily package and ship back to Wright-Patterson, but we would uh, actually go out and inventory and package it and then get a contract broker in to ship it out to a waste processor or disposal site. Mainly our uh, personal protective equipment is uh, gloving, uh, lab coats, things like that. Very rarely do we have to crawl into a Tyvek suit or respirator. So, <laughs> um, so it's not as... Uh, yeah, it, it you know, we, we have the precautions in place, and there's a lot of training that's involved with that, as you, as you can imagine. And, Zach, what is your uh, role, you know, as far as uh, environmental compliance comes? Are you, the job title, describe it pretty well? or <laughs> Fairly well, yeah. So the AFRAD is just one of the programs that, that I supervise. Um, I'm, I'm also um, uh, over the hazardous material, hazardous uh, waste programs, solid wastes and toxics, uh, infectious waste programs. So I've got a, a, a team of folks that, that manage each of those. Um, AFRAD is, is uh, unique, uh, is unique to Wright Pat, unique to the Air Force. Um, and, and so it's, uh, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's, a, it's a fun, you know, um, diversion from the, the standard, you know, environmental media programs that that i deal with yeah what are, what are just a few of the considerations you have to have uh, when you know dealing with radioactive material not just around wright patterson but uh you know in other projects that you're working on so um you know obviously the the you know the radioactive you know, the radioactivity and the the exposure uh that these guys um have a potential hazard you know for is is a consideration that's unique to afrad it's so essentially the you know the the considerations i have uh that are unique to afrad is really the the radioactivity and the the exposure that these guys can potentially you know be so so that's the uniqueness to to that i have to consider with afrad i mean where they deal with low level radioactivity so for the most part they're not really dealing with um you know things that that can um you know, be an acute hazard, 
but definitely the the chronic hazards and the chronic exposure is a consideration that that we have to be mindful of in the work that we do. Yeah, Chris, can you expand a little bit upon you know handling that material and and what that's like? Been doing this close to forty years, so it's uh, it um, it's normal to me. Um, you know, there's respect, and and as long as you respect you know, what you're dealing with, you know, you, things work out. You know, I, I always, always tell Zach, you know, it might, you know, he's, he has a chemistry background. I, you know, my education, my, you know, major was in chemistry, but, you know, chemicals scare me to death. <laughs> and uh, so I can deal with the radioactive material and, and, you know, we kind of laugh at that. And I guess it's all perspective. Um so, you know, you respect what you're doing, respect what you're dealing with. And, um, and ultimately, it, it, to get the job done, but being very mindful or protection of, of the people that are performing the function, protect the environment and protect the base populace and, and community. And, and that's our goal. 40 years, I mean, I imagine you've had to see some changes in the safety procedures. Was Were things, you know, a little bit more cowboy back in the day, or, or were, were they still um, pretty pretty tight? Yeah, I don't think things have uh, become more, you know, more cowboy. I mean, there's there's always that, that sense of respect, but it's more scientific now. Equipment, instrumentation, requirements are, 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 are regulated by the, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And, you know, so we're able to track doses better. Uh, we're able to, you know, better instrumentation and detection and things like that. So in that respect, it, it's gotten a lot better than 40 years ago. But as far as the safety aspect, that's, you know, that's always been there. Chris Anthony is Radioactive Material Program Manager for the Air Force Radioactive Recycling and Disposal Team. You also heard from Zach Olds, Supervisor and Compliance Officer for the team, speaking there with Federal News Network's Eric White. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy. His name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her. I'll take her on my team. 
And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit it, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on the results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called Labor and Employee Relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my 
bachelor's and my master's in leadership because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating, um, you know, from hi- historical to current, uh, current times. I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.